One of the beliefs that we hold dear as Baptists, I might say more broadly as the people of God, one of the beliefs that we hold dear is that we we try to found what we do believe on what the Word of God says. So it doesn't, it doesn't depend on ultimately what your opinion is or what my opinion is. We want to see, is it taught in the Bible? <clears throat> and um, so if it's taught in the Bible, and if it's plainly taught in the Bible, we may not understand it. But until we do understand it, if ever, we're going to say, well, I believe what the Bible says. Several years ago, I was um, asked to preach uh, a during the summer at a church not too far outside of Elizabethtown, Franklin Crossroads Baptist Church. And uh, so I preached there. I think it was for six or eight weeks. It wasn't long. Their pastor was on a sabbatical or something like that. And uh, the Lord blessed during those six or eight weeks. I had a good relationship with the people in the church, and they liked my preaching. And uh, so I suppose it was as a result of their recommending me to the First Baptist Church of Cecilia that I got a call within a few months asking if I could serve as the interim pastor at the First Baptist Church of Cecilia. And so there was no pulpit committee. Uh, They, somebody called me and said, will you be our interim pastor? And They didn't know me. I didn't know them. I said yes, and I went. And I guess it was probably on the first Sunday that I was there that uh, the man who was really looked to as the leader in the church, I don't know if he's still alive, he was in his uh, early 80s at that time. He would be pushing 90 by now. But uh, he took me out to lunch after the first, I think the first Sunday I was there. And uh, he asked me a question. I'll tell you the question in just a minute, but I have to fill in some of the background. So the, uh, the church had just gone through a very tumultuous time, and I never knew the man who had been the pastor there, but uh, I, I'm just going to say that he was a good man who got in too much of a hurry. And so he tried to... Uh, he tried to get some of, his, some of his ideas, which as far as I know, they were biblical ideas. He tried to get the church to accept them. And I suspect that he just was impatient. And um, so things did not turn out well. He was asked to leave. And, um, and then they called me to be their interim pastor. Now, I'm I I believe that one of the things that he tried to get pushed through in a hasty way was uh, what he believed concerning the doctrines of God's sovereign grace, which I believe. And uh, he probably uh, used the word Calvinism. I'm not afraid of the word Calvinism, but if somebody were to ask me, are you a Calvinist, I would say, what do you mean I would like for you to ask me what you want to know without using the word Calvinist because most people, don't, most people don't know what the word Calvinism means. Most people don't know what Calvinism is. And so I, I urge you, if someone asks you, are you a Calvinist, you should probably say, I'm not sure what you're asking me. Could you ask me what you want to know 
without using the word Calvinist. But this day, the man that I described to you, who was a good man, I came to love him. He sat across the table from me at uh, Bob Evans and he said, in two sentences, what is a Calvinist? I said, well, in two sentences, first of all, God does whatever he pleases. Secondly, God initiates, sustains, and completes the salvation of everyone who goes to heaven. And uh, that's quite a mouthful. That's a pretty good answer. It wasn't exactly that, but it was pretty close to that. You know, our God does whatever he pleases. That's one thing. And the second thing, God initiates, that is, he He's the one who starts salvation, the process of salvation in a person's heart. He sustains it, and he completes it. He completes the salvation of everyone who goes to heaven. But the man looked at me with a puzzled look that indicated that he did not understand what I'd said. And so I got to what I thought was bothering him. And I said, but probably what you want to know is, do Calvinists believe in missions and evangelism? And the answer to that question is yes. He nodded his head and said, that's exactly what I wanted to know. End of conversation. We ate our hamburgers and went home happy. And for the next year and a half, I was the interim pastor at that church. I loved them. They loved me. It was a sad day when I left. And the whole time... I preached from texts of Scripture like the one that I'm preaching from today, and nobody flapped a wing and nobody got angry. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, and uh, sometimes there are people who will preach from a text, and they do so gently, and they do so patiently. They'll preach from a text like the one that I have for this morning, and it still makes people mad. Well, my challenge to you is... Do you see that the doctrine of election is taught in the Scripture? And if you're a Bible reader, you've got to say, well, the Bible uses the word election, predestination, chosen, over and over again. In the New Testament alone, those words appear about 50 times. There are only 27 books in the New Testament. And so on an average of more than... On an average of about twice in every book, there's something in that book about God choosing people or God electing people or God predestining people. If you're going to believe the Bible, you've got to believe something about election. You can't say, I don't believe in election. It's in the Bible. You've got to believe something about it. And uh, so I hope that as a result of this sermon this morning and this text of Scripture, that you'll come to a better understanding as to what the doctrine of election is and why you don't need to be afraid of it. Uh, it's taught, it is taught in the Bible. My text this morning is 2 Thessalonians verses 13, 14, and 15. And here's what it says. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits, 
Or it could be uh, another manuscript says, chose you from the beginning. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. There are three or four things that I want to show you from this text of Scripture. And the first thing is we see God's sovereign choice. God's sovereign choice. Secondly, we'll see his gracious call to this he called you. Thirdly, we'll see God's glorious goal. He called us so that we may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, I'm going to draw some lessons that uh, we will take away with us from this study of what this passage of Scripture has to say about God's election and God's calling and God's preserving and enabling His people to persevere until we obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's first of all think about God's sovereign choice. Now in order to appreciate what verse 13 says, it really would be helpful for us to go back a couple of verses and begin reading with verse 10. Now this is in the midst of a very controverted passage of Scripture. Uh, I hope one day to preach from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, but for this morning let me just dive in in verse 10. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing... Because they refused to love the truth and so to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. Who sends them a strong delusion? God sends them a strong delusion. Why? So that they may believe what is false. In order that... All may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, verse 11 is quite a shock if you've never really thought about what it says. And what it says is that in some instances, God sends people a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Now, how God does this without being responsible for their believing what is false is a mystery that is too, too deep for me to explain. Uh, I don't always see how God is sovereign and humans are still acting freely, but it's kind of like a chain that goes all the way through a pond. I can see on one end the chain of God's sovereignty, and I can see on the other end the chain of human responsibility, but how they... It all connects is underwater, and I can't see it all. I know that both things are true because the Bible teaches both things. In this case, we saw in verse 10 that they refused to love the truth and so be saved. And so it may be after a persistent and continual refusing of the truth that God sends people a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false and in order that they may be condemned. God does, after all, send judgments. And the point that we need to see this morning is that sometimes God sends judgments of the mind and judgments of the will 
so that people no longer see the truth and any desire that they may have at one time had to embrace the truth has been obliterated and erased. And as far as I can tell, when God does that to a person, there is no hope for them. But I don't know when that happens in a person's mind. The warning that should come from this is don't play around with God's truth. Don't always be putting it off and saying, I'll deal with that later. Don't sin against your conscience. If you know that something is wrong, don't do it. Your conscience can become seared as with a hot iron. It can become calloused. I mean, you work with a tool the first day and it puts a blister on your hand. And the next couple of days, your hand is sore. But after about a week, you start to develop calluses. And pretty soon, you can use that tool and it won't hurt your hand anymore. Your conscience is like that. Your conscience will object to something that you want to do and you go ahead and do it and your conscience gets a blister on it. But then you keep on doing it and your conscience is sore for a few days. But after a while, your conscience doesn't bother you anymore about that. Don't do it. God can send you a delusion so that you believe what is false. And then there's no hope for you unless God decides to send down a thunderbolt of His grace to awaken you out of that stupor. But God is not, apparently, God is not doing everything that He can to get everyone saved that He possibly can. Now, that's a, that's a big step. If you've heard all of your life that God has done all that He can, and now He's waiting on you to take the, the first step, and then He'll meet you halfway, that's not, obviously, that's not consistent with this passage of Scripture. God sometimes says, that's enough. I'm not going to deal with you anymore. Well, in contrast to that very dark background, here comes this glimmering diamond of truth. God didn't do that to you. God didn't do that to me. So we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. So God is under no obligation to save anyone. The passage of Scripture that I read from Romans chapter 9 a few minutes ago throws out some pretty rough truth. It says that God said to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you. And then the, the objection that is anticipated is why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I mean, if God hardens a man's heart and he behaves in a sinful way, how can you say that God is going to punish him because God hardened him and he did, in a state of hardness, the bad things that he did? How can you find fault with God for that? Uh, the Lord gives two answers in the book of Romans chapter 9. The first one is, God has never obligated himself to show mercy to everybody. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So if we're going to say that God is unfair in choosing some people, we have got to first of all prove from the Bible that he was obligated to choose all people. And you're not going to succeed at that. God never obligated himself to have mercy upon all people. And so we should admire his grace that he chose some. If he chose only one person to be saved... 
that would be a manifestation of his grace. But instead of choosing only one person, he chose a multitude that no person could number. I find it interesting that many people who object strenuously to the doctrine of election have no problem with acknowledging that God chose only one nation out of the peoples of the world during the days of the Old Covenant. As far as we know from the Scriptures, God chose only the nation of Israel, and He left the rest of the world to perish in their dark ignorance. But for some reason, that doesn't seem to bother people. But look at the implications of that. I mean, if God did that, then there's only a few thousand people on the earth, a few million people when they were at their, at their peak population who knew about God and who had any possibility of being reconciled to God and the rest of the millions of people around the world were left in their sin. But that doesn't seem to bother most people. And then it also doesn't bother people that apparently God has left uncounted millions of angels to perish without a Redeemer. Jesus never died to take away the sin of fallen angels. Apparently there's no hope of salvation for the fallen angels. But that doesn't seem to bother most people. But it does bother many people. I understand why. It does bother many people when we see that the Bible teaches, or you hear someone preaching like I'm preaching now, that before the foundation of the world, God chose who was going to be saved. And that He did it out of His mere good pleasure. He did not do it because He foresaw anything good in anybody. So he did it before the foundation of the world. We read that in Ephesians chapter 1 a few minutes ago. We had not done anything good or bad. We read that in the book of Romans a few minutes ago. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might stand, but not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. But I left off the second reason that is mentioned in Romans chapter 9 for God's doing things. Uh, the way that he has done them. The first reason, explanation is, he was not obligated to show mercy to everyone. But the second thing that is stated there in Romans chapter 9 is, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? There is a degree of humility that is necessary for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you had asked me 35 years ago, what's the most important quality to instill in a child, I don't know what I would have said. But after 33 years of being a parent, I can tell you that the most important quality that you can instill in a child is cheerful submission to authority. Cheerful submission to authority. Now, that may sound odd to you, but I've thought a lot about it. Nobody gets into the kingdom of heaven who does not cheerfully submit to God. And I understand if you see that a doctrine is not, if you don't yet understand that a doctrine is taught in the Bible and you say, I don't believe this or that. But once you see that it's taught in the Bible, if you say, I'm not going to submit to that and my God would never do that, you're in trouble. Because you have got to cheerfully submit to what the Bible reveals about God. And I know that it can be tough. There are some questions that arise when you see that God chose before the foundation of the world who was going to be saved. And uh, there are questions that arise, such as, what if my loved one is not one of the elect? Well, your, your loved one may not be one of the elect. Uh, but unless God does something in the life of your loved one, your loved one is not going to be saved. 
And you believe that when you pray for your loved one. When you pray for your loved one, you, don't, you do not say this. Oh God, I know that you treat all people equally. I know that what you do for one, you do for everybody. You're a gentleman, and you're fair, and with you there is no respecter of person. So I'm asking you, just leave my loved one alone. It wouldn't be fair if you messed with his mind. It wouldn't be fair if you tipped the scales in, in your face. I believe in free will, and so we need to leave my loved one alone. No, that's not the way you pray. You pray, Lord, send people into his life sovereignly direct people to talk to Him. Lord, be at work to make Him dissatisfied with this life that He is living. Lord, make Yourself beautiful in His eyes. Are you asking God to mess with His mind? Yes! And that's what you should do. Because you know that if God doesn't intervene, then there's no hope. Well, what you're saying in prayer, the foundation for that is laid in the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election teaches that God planned before the foundation of the world for the success of the gospel. Another question that arises in the mind of people who hear that God chose before the foundation of the world who was going to believe is what then is the use of missions and evangelism? This passage of scripture will answer some of those questions for you. He called you, he chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. And so belief in the sovereignty of God does not, does not take away the need for missions and evangelism because God has planned not only the end, namely the salvation, but He has also planned the means by which that salvation would be accomplished. And so uh, those of us who believe in the sovereignty of God are actually encouraged by the doctrine of election. Because it means that God has planned for the success of the gospel. And uh, when, I go, when I go turkey hunting, I hunt in a place where I've seen turkey tracks. I go in a place where I've seen evidence that turkeys live there. And then I sit down and I call. And I don't kill a turkey every time I go turkey hunting. But if I stay there where there are turkeys and I hunt long enough, pretty soon a turkey's going to come in and I'll get to harvest that bird. Well, that's a similar idea prevails with God's electing. God has elected sheep and he scattered them throughout the world. And if we issue the sheep call, then sooner or later the sheep are going to come in. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. The Apostle Paul was laboring in a city where the, the results were pretty sparse and he was being persecuted and things were discouraging. And God appeared to him one night and said, Paul, Keep on preaching because I have many people in this city. Well, where are they? They're certainly not coming to church on Sunday morning. Where are they? And the idea is, I have people chosen to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel in this city. So when properly understood, the doctrines of God's sovereign grace and His electing grace are actually an encouragement to missions and evangelism. If it were not for God's election then there would be no guarantee that anybody would be saved through the preaching of the gospel. But because of election, God has guaranteed that the work of Christ will not be in vain, and the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to those who are elect. So the sovereignty of God, it says that, brothers, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits. Now, if you have an English Standard Version, then 
right beside, right at the end of first fruits, you have a little number one. And if you follow that little number one down to the footnote to the bottom of the page, it says some manuscripts have this, he chose you from the beginning. Now, if you happen to have a King James Version, or if you have a New International Version, or if you have a New American Standard Bible, then you will have what's in the other manuscripts. It says, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved. In fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible, and you look at the little note that's right there, it will tell you that there's only one ancient manuscript that has the reading that we have here in the ESV that God shows you as the first fruits. I don't know which is the correct reading. I prefer, because of my theological bias, I prefer the reading, He chose you from the beginning. But I'm not dependent on that reading in order to say that God chose you before the foundation of the world. That's in Ephesians chapter 1. If we go with what we have here, you still have people being saved to be having people to be saved. This is not an election to service. This is an election to salvation. God chose you either from the beginning or as the first fruits to be saved. Now, in being chosen as the first fruits, I think that it means out of all of the harvest, the first fruits is the best. The first fruits are the best. That's the way it was under the Old Testament. And out of all of humanity, God chooses His elect to be the best. They are His people. They are the first fruits. It could also refer to the fact that the Thessalonians embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ very early in uh, the spread of God's kingdom to the Gentile nations. For all I know, we could also be called the first fruits because I don't know when the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back, and it could be many thousands of years in the future. For all I know, I know that's also a shocking thing for you to hear. But uh, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. This is God's sovereign choice to salvation. And notice, it's through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It's not just that God chose you to go to heaven. He chose you to be sanctified and to believe the truth. In 2 Peter, there is a verse of Scripture that says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and your election sure. How can you make your election sure? We look back in the, look back into the council halls of eternity and we see that God chose a people from the beginning as before He made anything. But we can't see who He chose. I don't know who the elect are. My responsibility and your responsibility is just to preach the gospel to everybody. God is going to take care of who gets converted. But uh, we can't see, did God choose me way back there? Did He write my name down in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world way back there? I can't see that book. But what I can see and what you can see is the evidence of God's work in your life. Has He sanctified you? Do you believe the truth? If He has sanctified you, then you are elect. If you receive the gospel, if you believe the truth, then you are elect and God has loved you with an everlasting love. You know, there are people who object to the doctrine of election and they say, you know, I, I don't think it's fair that God would elect some people and not elect others. 
Well, are you a lost person saying that? Here's my question for you this morning. Do you want to be saved through Jesus Christ? Then come to Jesus Christ. Do you want to be set free from your sin and devote yourself to a life of holiness? Then come to Jesus Christ. You say, well, I don't want to. Well, then why are you complaining because God didn't choose you to do it? If you want to come, then come. And if you don't want to come, then there's no point in complaining that God didn't choose you. No one will come, Jesus said. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so the evidence that a person has been elected is that they are sanctified. They are set free from the dominion of sin so that sin no longer controls you. There is no child of God on earth who is completely free from sin. But sin no longer has dominion over you. You're not a helpless slave to sin the way that you once were. Set free from sin and set free so that now you're pursuing after God. And if you're, not, if you're still under the dominion of sin, then it doesn't matter what prayer you prayed. It doesn't matter what aisle you walked. It doesn't matter what church you were baptized into. If you have not been sanctified and if you are not believing the truth and its influence in the way that you live, you're not, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. And you need to get that right with the Lord. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So we've seen the absolute sovereignty of God. Now let's see more briefly the gracious call of God in verse 14. To this He called you through our gospel. You see, it is the gospel that triggers the receptor in the mind of God's elect. Inside this room right now, there are radio waves. We can't hear any of the things that are playing on the radio right now because we don't have a receiver tuned in to receive those radio waves. Well, it's similar to that in the minds of the elect. There is a receiver in the minds of the elect And one day, God calls you, He turns on the receiver, and you hear the gospel. You hear it, you understand it enough so that you believe it, and you receive and rest upon Christ alone for your salvation. But He he calls you, and He calls through the gospel. And so, we proclaim the gospel, that God has been reconciled to sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ, and all who are united to Christ by faith become cleansed by the blood of Christ, become clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's the bare bones of the gospel. And He has called you through the gospel. So that is His glorious calling. And then notice the glorious goal that He has in mind. And this is the third thing. We see it in verse 14. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, your mind may immediately rush to, that means that I'm going to go to heaven. And that's part of the glory of Jesus Christ. But the glory of Jesus Christ is something that is bestowed on believers even now. Uh, you're, You're granted eternal life the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ. And again, from 2 Peter chapter 1 The Bible says that Jesus has given us very great and precious promises uh, 
He, he calls us, he calls us to his own glory and excellence. The Lord, the Lord says you don't need to lead a, a life like an animal. You don't have to just live for this world and whatever possessions and prestige you can get now. You can know God. You can become a partaker of the divine nature. The Lord Jesus Christ shows us how. And so as we run the race, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him finished the race. And now at the, at the finish line, he, he claps like a family member urging a cross-country runner to keep going, keep it up, keep your, keep your energy going. I'm summoning you to victory. I'm calling you to glory and excellence. Even now, you may live a glorious life. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be known. Because glory is not the same thing as fame. And even now, you have been saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And He calls you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, that glory is brought to perfection when we are with Him in heaven. So now let's conclude with looking at uh, three or four lessons that we should take away from this. And the first thing is we ought to be grateful. My text started off with, with, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. So when we see those, the work that God has done in others, that ought to cause us to be grateful. And when we see the work that God has done in us, that ought to cause us to be grateful. We have to say, Lord, the only reason that I love you is because you loved me first. We have to say, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, but thou hast chosen me. Thou from the chains that, that, that bound me, released and set me free, and to this end ordained me that I should live for thee. T'was sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart owned none above thee. To th- for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. And then from another song, this one by Isaac Watts. He says, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there is room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Why me? It wasn't because he saw anything good in me. He chose me out of his pure, sovereign goodwill. There are some people who say, well, God looked down through the tunnel of time. He saw who was going to believe in him, and that's the ones that he chose. Now, my friend, I want to be gentle, but that's nonsense. If, if at one of the exits off the interstate, I see a man there with a sign saying anything helps, and I decide that I'm going to give him a dollar, it's silly for me to say, I chose to give him that dollar because I foresaw that he was going to receive it. That's just nonsense. Furthermore, it's nonsense when the Bible says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's nonsense to say that God saw some people who were going to seek him when he said there's not even one that does. And so when God looks down through the tunnel of time, he asks, are there any who understand? Is there anyone who seeks after God? No, they have together become worthless. They have all turned aside. There is no one righteous. And then as if he just takes one last look, I just want to be sure, he concludes, no, not one. So 
God doesn't look down through the tunnel of time and see who's going to believe because the tunnel would be empty. There's no one in there who believes. And so you are a believer because God loved you with an everlasting love. And in time, he sent Jesus to die for you. He sent the Holy Spirit to call you by the gospel. That ought to make us overflow with gratitude. It's inconsistent to believe in the doctrine of unconditional election and be proud of it. Instead, the doctrine of unconditional election humbles us at the feet of the Lord and say, it's all you. It's all you, Lord. My salvation is your work from beginning to end. So the first response that we ought to have to this doctrine is one, we ought to be grateful. The second response is, be careful. Be careful that you don't pat yourself on the back and say, I'm elect when you are not living a holy life. The doctrine of election and the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved, is not meant to comfort us in our sin. If we, are living, if we are living a life under the dominion of sin, the evidence is we have never been converted. So be careful. Don't comfort yourself in a life of sin by this doctrine or any other doctrine in the New Testament. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Thirdly, be faithful. So first of all, be grateful. Secondly, be careful. And then finally, be faithful. It says in verse 14 that we may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then look what it says in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So the doctrine of God's sovereignty shows that he is preserving us, but it also indicates that he enables us to persevere. He enables us to stand firm. And so be faithful in standing firm. And then one final thing, be faithful in sharing the gospel. Be faithful in supporting the work of this church and the mission endeavors that we have. Be faithful in supporting this church and the, the ministries that we're able to have here, the preaching of the word and, uh, and the, the teachers that we support, our youth, our youth pastor and our children's director and, and uh, Jim Bob and, and, and other people who receive, a, who receive a salary. It's all gospel-centered. It must be. It has to be or it's all useless. It's just a social club without all that. And so let's be faithful in supporting the work of proclamation of the gospel because that is the way that God calls sinners unto himself. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper this morning, and so I'll ask uh, the, the deacons and elders who will assist in the serving to come. This is a meal that is for people who have already been called into salvation and been baptized. So if you have not been saved, this is not going to help you. It might hurt you. And so don't, don't, partake, of, don't partake of this uh, meal when the plate passes by you. Just let it pass by you. And uh, what, what we would love to happen is that you would be filled with a longing to say, I, I want to be in fellowship with the Lord, in fellowship with His church, so that I can participate in the communion of saints. I can participate in the Lord's Supper. But... Until you've been saved and until you've been baptized, then I urge you not to partake in this supper. But for those of you who have been converted and have been baptized, 
Come and welcome to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we partake of this this little symbolic meal, we pray that you will help us to discern the body of the Lord. Help us to discern the blood of the Lord. That he had a body. He had a body that was filled with blood. He was a real human. And he gave himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. And as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do it remembering Jesus. Amen. So we will pass, uh, uh, pass out the, the, the bread and then hold it in your hand and I'll say we'll all take it together. And then we'll do the same thing with the cup.